بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم سو امام غزائد so in zikr that is a state of fana in the zikr which is almost like a dreamlike state because it's also disconnected from this world and that's what Allah subhanahu wa says in Quran tabattu means you lose your awareness and shu'ur of the world such a level of zikr it is possible to have a ziyara of Sayyidina Rasulullah in exactly the same way it is possible to have the ziyara of Sayyidina Rasulullah while sleeping and seeing a dream And just like that is true for any of the Nabeen and any of the Malaika. Then imagine if a person said, I made istikhara for seven days and he's a very muttaki, saleh, haya woman. And she says, in my dream I saw Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. And the speech, the instruction here is not like they're going to give a clear thing. In the dream world and in this ilham world and the wakeful state, that is like an ishara. So just like the response to istikhara is usually an ishara, similar here they may get some ishara, right? It may even be that the person says in the dream, I saw Sayyidina Musa and he turned his face, or he smiled, or something like that in ishara. So the similar, such, exact same thing, anything that can happen in a dream can happen to a person, can get a similar vision like that when they're in a state of paniyat, paniyat in their dhikr. But this is very rare, very occasional, very special. It is only the will and wish and control of Allah SWT which determines when such a thing happens. But now this explains these passages. Now we turn then and move to page 31. So then it says in general, the person to whom Allah SWT has granted, in general the person to whom Allah SWT has granted no dhok at all means that they haven't experienced any hal, then they apprehend, they understand no more of what prophetic revelation really is than the name. What does it mean again? So you had an example of shukr, another example. If a person has never ever experienced hal of the shukr, then the only thing they know is the letters sheen, kaf, ra. They just know the word shukr. They don't need the reality of what has been mentioned in Quran and Sunnah through Wahi and Nabuwa. The miraculous graces given to the awliya, saints is not a good word, that's a very Christian word. The miraculous graces given to the awliya are in truth the beginnings. Now here also thinks he's not saying they're beginning to become a prophet. He's saying it's just a drop compared to what the anbiya are given. So even the shukr of the awliya, the sabr of the awliya, the dhikr of the awliya, if you compare that to the shukr of the anbiya, the sabr of the anbiya, the dhikr of the anbiya, then this is just very elementary level. That's not even beginning. Compared to that, but given that nobody can be a nabi after Sayyidina so now what is elementary when you compare it to the anbiya becomes actually the highest possible level of attainment when you compare it to the rest of insan. And the first state, the first hal of Sayyidina Rasulullah when he went to the cave of Mahira and he was given up entirely to his Rabb and he was worshipping his Rabb such that even the Badr used to say about Sayyidina Rasulullah that Muhammad loves his Rabb passionately. 
What does it mean that even the Bedouin, this is from a statement from the books of Sira, that when Sayyidina Sosim used to go up to the mountain, the Bedouins who used to see him every day coming and going to him and coming down, they didn't know. They thought he is worshipping some being, and they used to say he really loves his rub passionately. So actually Sayyidina Rasulullah at that moment, before his Nabuwa was made apparent, what was apparent was his Wilayah. This was the act of his Wilayah, that he was able to sit for so long in that cave in Mount Hira and do it over and over and over again. Now this is a Hal which is realized in Dhok. What does this mean? This is a feeling which is experienced by those who practice the path that leads to these feelings. And those to whom it is such a feeling has not been given, or those to whom it has not been granted by Allah Ta'ala to them to have that immediate experience, they can become assured of it by two other ways. This is why I told you Ihtimad is going to come. So somebody says the word Fana. So how do I know with true certainty that Fana really exists? First way is I have immediate experience of that fana. Second, if Allah Ta'ala has not blessed me to have that fana, that experience has not been granted by Allah Ta'ala to me, Imam is making it also clear, that nothing is in the power of someone. The wilayat of a wali is always gifted by Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, can be taken by Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Everything is in the power of Allah SWT. Hence the humility of these awliya, they always use such language. Granted by Allah SWT, granted by Allah SWT, granted by Allah SWT. And if somebody hasn't had that experience, has not experienced fana, how can they know with true certainty that fana exists? So he says there's one way they can do it. They can be assured of it by trial, by experiment, it means by association. What does it mean that they don't feel the fana themselves? but they associate with someone who feels that fana. That is another way, suhba, suhba. The same way we know the truth of Nabuwa, we didn't experience Prophet or ourselves, we're not Nabi ourselves. But Sahaba Ram, how do they know with certainty Sayyidina Rasulullah was a Nabi, they associated with him? They associated with him? Third way, is by hearsay, simply by hearing it, that is ihtimal. For example, if we pick up a book, and it talks about the fana that Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jinayat had in the zikr. And then it talks about the fana that Imam Bahaudi Nakshibanat in the zikr. So this is, if we have itimad on those reports, we have itimad that those awliya really, when they did zikr of Allah SWT, they forgot everything else, then that is another way that they will have yakin about it. And this will happen if they have sufficiently numerous opportunity to associate with the awliya, to understand with certainty by means of what accompanies those ahwal. Whoever sits in their company derives from them this certain faith that those sifat exist. And none of who sits in their company is paid. This is a sahirith of Sayyidina Rasulullah when he talked about the people of dhikr. And then the angel sent the mercy on those people. And then Allah Ta'ala sent his mercy on those people. Then the angel said, Ya Allah, there is one person who is just a passerby. He's not actually from that group. So Allah SWT told the angels, that they are such people that even the person who sits with them, he will never be deprived. Means he also gets my mercy. Even if he's not a regular attendee, even if he was just passing by, he happened to sit by happenstance. That's the power that hadith is showing that something happens with that suhbah. 
there's a transference, there's a feeling. Why did Allah Ta'ala say in Quran, Kunu ma sadiqeen? That associate and be in the company of the sadiqeen, because just the amal of kunu, not experiencing it yourself, maybe not even, not even hearsay, just simply association with them, will make a person realize the sit of the siddiqeen. And that is the truth when we sit with the awliyaullah today, we know that there's something called wilaya, just by sitting with them. When we sit with the true ulama today, we know there's something called ilman, just by sitting with them. We can realize and feel there's a hakikah, a reality called ilm. We don't have it ourselves, right? But we, when we sit with them, we can feel it in them. This is what it means. Those to whom it is not even granted to have suhba or even meet the awliya, Again, Imam Bhagavad Gita even this is a gift from Allah SWT. Even this is granted by Allah Ta'ala to have sobata uliya. So how would they know? He says, they can know with certainty, with yakin, the possibility of such fana, even spiritual ecstasy, such fana, such absorption in the qurb of Allah SWT by the evidence and demonstration, as I have remarked in the section Ajayb al-Qulub in his Ihya al-Mudin. So sometimes he does this many times, almost, actually almost every work that he writes after Ihya al-Mudin, he always refers people to go look at Ihya al-Mudin, go look at Ihya al-Mudin. That's also available in English in the Quipper, can Yes? <laughs> That, that particular book of Ihalamadi has been translated into English as well as, 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 as of many others. Certainty reached by demonstration is ilm, but actual acquaintance with that state is zok. The Imam Ghazali often gives this example, and if I'm not mistaken, it's coming later, is that one is to have ilm to know what a mango is, and to know what it tastes like. And the second thing is to taste a mango. So to know what a mango tastes like is one level of certainty. To actually taste the mango is a second level of certainty. So he's saying the same thing here about that feeling of fanayat, that hal of zikr. And the acceptance of it as probable, so possible, probable, certain. Right? The acceptance of it as probable from hearsay and trial is iman. So we, it's our iman that fana exists. It's our iman that tabattul exists because it's in Qur'an. It's our iman that there are people who are truly awliyaan siddiqeen because these words are in Qur'an. But whether we have met any one of them or not, or experienced that ourselves or not, that is a separate matter altogether. So that's why then Imam Zayda quotes this verse of Qur'an, that Allah SWT will raise those of you who have iman and those who have been given ilm in darajat. So it shows that there are degrees and levels of ilm. The more and more a person has ilm, the more they are raised, means they are brought closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is also important because some people suggest to you that there is no such thing like that. That ilm, people who have ilm and don't have ilm are equal. In fact, another Allah ta'ala addressed that directly. Can those who have ilm ever be equal or the same, at the same level as those who don't have ilm? So it means no. Right? But that was on the condition that the ilm really led to amal and ikhlas and khashiyah. Right? So the true ilm, it means that person who has the nur of ilm and the person who doesn't have the nur of ilm may not be the, will never be the same. But it's possible a person has information but doesn't have the nur of the ilm because they don't practice that knowledge or they don't have sincerity in that knowledge. Alright? Then Imam Sadiq continues that behind the awliya means 
external to them, other than all the others, a crowd of ignorant people. They deny this fundamentally. They're astonished at this line of thought. They listen and mock. Amazing, they say. What nonsense they talk. They get fana and tabattul and kurb and mayat and marfat. What nonsense they talk. Hmm? About such people, Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, some of them listen to you until upon going out from you, they say to those to whom knowledge has been given, what did he just say now? These are the people who, on whose hearts Allah Ta'ala sets a seal and they follow their passions. Then Imam Zari adds that he makes them deaf and blinds their sight. Imam Zari is making an analogy here, which strictly speaking is not fair, but if you say it analog, analogously, analogically, analogous, analogously, it would be fair. What does it mean? Strictly speaking, it's not fair because the eye is about kufar. So those mu'mineen who are not acquainted with Zawq and Hal and the reality of the wilayat of the awliya and they mock it and they deny it, it's not good to mock other mu'mineen, right? But it doesn't make a person outside the pain. It doesn't make a person. So Imam is not using this ayah in that strict way. He's not doing tasbih. He's using it by way of analogy. What does it mean? That just like some people, when they hear even about the basics of Imam, they don't accept it and say, what nonsense is this, Right? And it means because Allah Ta'ala has set a seal on their hearts and they're unable to perceive the reality of Imam. Just like that, by analogy, is the reality of Ihsan. That some people who have not personally experienced the reality of Ihsan, what Sayyidina Sussam said to worship Allah Ta'ala as if you see him, they know the words, but they haven't experienced the reality. And so then if they meet someone who has that experience, or somebody says that this is Shaykh, this is what he has that experience, they can't understand that and they mock it. So by analogy, Mawzad, they're saying is in a similar way, Allah Ta'ala has at this moment set a veil on their hearts from perceiving Ihsan, but they're still amongst Ahlul Imam. So don't misunderstand Mawzad is using this verse and trying to suggest that people who mock only are unbelievers. It's not like that. Right? It, you can say, in other words, Imam says, mocking is mocking. One level is the unbelievers mocking of the believers' Imam, and then one level is those who don't have Ihsan mocking those who have Ihsan. Like the first level is those who don't have Iman mocking those who have Iman. Among the things that necessarily became clear to me from my practice, and this is a very important section, and this is one of the most famous sections of all of Imam Muhammad's works, and is one of the pillars of all of his writings. What is that? Then amongst the things that necessarily became clear to me, Ilmul Yaqeen, from my practice of the Zikr of God of the path of the Sawwuf, was the true nature and special features of prophetic revelation. That that revelation, knowledge, that Allah Ta'ala sent on Sayyidina Rasulullah is unique, is special, is unparalleled, is amazing. That knowledge that was revealed by Allah Ta'ala to Sayyidina Rasulullah And the basis of that must undoubtedly be indicated in view of the urgent need for it. Two things he means here. Number one, humanity urgently needs to be guided by that knowledge that Allah Ta'ala revealed to Sayyidina Rasulullah And secondly, what he really means here is humanity has an urgent need to view that knowledge as special. 
And if they don't view that knowledge as special, they think it's ordinary or it's somewhat special, they may live their life partially guided by that revelation and partially unguided by it. But when it's demonstrated to them, so what the translator has put a heading here, the true nature of prophecy and the compelling need of all creation for it, that what an incredible, wondrous thing this revelatory knowledge that Allah Ta'ala sent on Sayyidina is. When a person realizes it's so amazing, they will really feel like they need it. So you must know that the substance of man in his original condition was created in bareness and simplicity without any information about the worlds of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala Most High. These worlds are many, the Alameen, and they're not entirely known by anyone except for Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala Himself. As Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala said in Quran, none knows the host of thy Lord safety. Humanity's information about the world then is by means of their perception. And every perception of perceptibles, every vision of things that can be seen, every hearing of things that can be heard, etc., is created so that thereby man may have, humanity may have some acquaintance with the world from amongst existence. By worlds or spheres, we simply mean classes of existence. And you may be wondering what happened. Imam Ghazali was just writing in such a simple way. I was following up to now. Now it works with all the philosophical terms in the speech. I thought he was talking about Nabuat or Sahel and Again, Imam Ghazali is reaching out, he's making da'wah to those people who think that because they have philosophy, they don't have a compelling need for prophecy. So he's trying to talk to them in their terms. He's using their terms to capture their imagination and to entrance them in the wonders of Nabuwa. Right? Fair. So for us... Right now, reading the text 900 years later, we may not have needed this, right? But this is Imam Ghazali reaching out, okay? It means simply today that if you meet somebody who is so wowed and amazed by science, and so wowed and amazed by humanities, and so wowed and amazed by this, so Imam Ghazali is trying to wow and amaze them about Nabuwa, so they realize this incredible thing called Allah Ta'ala's revelation on Sayyidina Rasulullah, okay? first thing that was created in sound was the sense of touch. Now this is something for the physiologists and scholars of anatomy to discover, and maybe they have caught up to this, and maybe they haven't. I don't know. The first thing that was created by the uh, by humanity was the sense of touch. And by he perceives certain classes, means certain existence, so by touch he can tell there are certain things that are hot, certain that are cold, rough, smooth, moist, dry, etc. But touch is unable to apprehend other things. Through touch you can't tell if it's blue or red. Through touch you can't tell if it's loud or not. Okay? So it has some ability, but is limited ability. Next then, it was created in the sense of sight. In sight he can tell if it's blue or red. He can apprehend colors. He can understand shapes. And this is the most extensive of the world that you see. For example, every day, how many are the things that we touch? How many are the things that we taste? How many are the things we smell? Compared to how many are the things that we see? Right? So the greatest input is coming in through the eyes. Next, hearing is implanted in him, so that he hears sounds of various kinds. Taste is implanted in him, so that he is able then to taste, and so on, until, so on means smell, until he has completed the world of sense perception. Next, when he is about seven years old, he is created in him a tamyiz, the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, a foregone, a criteria. This is a fresh stage in his development. He now apprehends more than just what he, he or she can see, and none of these additional factors exist in the world of sense. In other words, a sense of right and wrong. 
You can't tell by touch if something is right and wrong. You can't tell by smell if something is right and wrong. Right? This is another type of perception. Another faculty of perception. This age seven, this is why those of you may know the Hadith, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that let the children play, but at age seven, you should start teaching them values. At ten, you should do tarheeb of that, and at twelve slash physical maturity, you should enforce them. Enforce what is right and wrong. Enforce doesn't mean violent, oppressive. It means what Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, Amal bin Maruf wa al Munkar. So that starts at home. That starts to enjoin what is good and to mm, forbid, if you will, what is evil. So it starts at the age of seven. From this he ascends to another stage, which is the stage of Akal. And some of the ulama felt that when a person gets physical balagha is when they also get akli balagha. That's why in fiqh they give a person capacity. You know, like you have capacity to consent. So one's a minor or a major, right? So when a person has physical balagha, they are now also have an akal. So they can get married if they so wanted, they could do certain things. So in the West they have different categories. So for example in New York you can drive when you're 16, you can vote when you're 18, and you can drink when you're 21. Of course, they do it the other way around. They drink when they're 16, and they drive when they're 18, and they vote when they're... <laughs> right? But there's a notion of at some point, everybody has this concept of when a person is oh, mentally mature. So in our deen, many of the fuqaha felt that physical maturity and mental maturity come together. So that's another stage you can call that, let's say, mm, puberty, right? Physical and intellectual maturity. He apprehends things that are necessary, possible, impossible. He knows that it's impossible that a circle can be a square. A seven-year-old may not know that yet, but a bothered person is supposed to know that. Okay? Beyond intellect, then there is another stage, and this another faculty of perception is opened, by which he beholds the unseen, what is to be in the future, and other things that are beyond the ken of intellect. It doesn't mean, he's not talking about here, the way it's telling that everybody gets some total ilmulgay, what he's talking about is that there's another faculty with which you will believe in the Akhirah. He's not saying you will see it. That's why I trained it as in not I, Islam. Basirat means an inner perception. What does it mean? So Akhirah is something that you can't touch and you can't see and you can't hear. Nor is Akhirah something that you can rationally prove. So there must be another faculty of knowledge through which you will know the Akhirah. That is what he's talking about here. That you will know things that are gay. So what he's talking about is not ilmo gay. He's talking about alladina yuqinuna bil And yuqinuna, who have iman and have yaqeen in that which is unseen. Through what faculty do they get that yaqeen in what is unseen? Not through their sense perception, not through their akal, through this additional faculty, which is their basirat, which is their kalb, which is their heart. That's what he's saying. Alright? What is to be in the future? He's not saying, is it? He's going to know what happens tomorrow. Future here means day judgment. They have yakin that they're going to die and molt. That's in their future. They have yakin and day judgment. They have yakin knowledge in these things. That is not required to touch and taste. And that is not required to ugly proofs. Alright? That's what he's talking about. That also is something. The next faculty of knowledge which is beyond the learning of intellect. Just as he says, and it's very similar to what we did before, if you were here in the beginning, so we can go over this quickly, just the person, just from person of seven, he only knows the sense perception, he will deny the akal. Just like that, the person who only knows akal may deny this kalb, may deny the heart faculty of perception. Alright? 
That's why he says some intellectuals reject and disregard the revelation that Allah Ta'ala sent to Sayyidina Rasulullah, which is that information which you cannot rationally understand. That there's a day of judgment, akhirah, life after death, etc., etc., pulsed out, all of that. So people who are stuck on the exclusively intellect stage, they can't understand this, so they reject it. Alright? Somebody whose heart has not yet opened. Then Imam Zara writes that that is sheer ignorance. They have no ground for their view except that this is the stage that they have not reached. They haven't reached the stage of Nakalya. So for them, relative to them, that stage doesn't exist and therefore they deny it. But they, and therefore they deny it and think that it doesn't exist in itself. It exists in itself, but doesn't exist for them. What it means is that being able to have Imam bil Ghayb is a reality, even though they are not right now really able to believe in unseen. Okay. When a man, blind from birth, who has not learned about colors and shapes, but listens to people talk about yellow and red and blue and circle and square, when he's told about it from the first time, he can't understand these things. If he hears the word circle, he can't understand what that is. But, he can't understand them, nor will he admit their existence. But, if he is given sight, he will accept those things. Just like that, a person whose heart hasn't opened to Iman, they can never understand these things. But once their heart is endowed with the faculty of Iman, then they have Iman Bilgeh. Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has favored his creatures, creation, by giving them something analogous to the special faculty of prophecy, namely dreams. Again, that same analogy, he's not saying you dream, you become a Nabi. He's saying that when you dream, in the dream state, a man apprehends what is to be in the future, which is something of the unseen. He does so either explicitly or as clothed in a symbolic form whose interpretation is disclosed. This is actual reality. He's not saying every dream is a portent of the future, but what in English they call deja vu. Sometimes in a dream you may see something which actually is yet to happen. Why? Part of it has to do with that when you enter a dream-like state, it's actually your... If it's a spiritual dream, there are certain dreams that you have which are exactly what neuroscience says, just a product of your psyche. Those are dreams that you... What you were thinking about that day, what you're worried about, what your anxieties are. This type of dream that Imam Zai is talking about is something else. This is the dream of your ruh. Your ruh also dreams. Your qalb dreams. Those are dreams where you could have ziyarat of Nabiya Kareem. That's not coming from your psyche. That's coming from a different aspect of you. Those are the dreams for... If your ruh is yearning for Allah SWT, going for Hajj, you have a dream where you see the Kaaba. Right? In those dreams that are taking place on the basis of your qalb and ruh, although they're playing out in your neurons, but they're emanating from your qalb and your ruh, not from your psyche, those dreams enter a realm of timelessness. Because your ruh is in essence timeless. Everybody's rule is going to last forever. Whether it lasts in Jannah forever or it lasts in Jahannam forever, that will be decided on the Day of Judgment, but every rule is timeless. Then, if Allah Taala is inspiring you like an istikhara, right, with some knowledge from Himself, which Allah Ta'ala calls ilm al dunni a knowledge that is bestowed from Himself, Allah Ta'ala's knowledge is timeless. So that timeless Allah SWT sending some knowledge from His timeless knowledge to your timeless rule, sometimes then you may see something in that dream which is actually yet to come in the future. This is very rare, occasional, 
few individuals may have this few times in their entire lifetime. He's not saying people every night they dream they're seeing the future. It's not like that. And it may even be somebody in this room can say, once I saw a dream, and in that dream I saw a certain something. And when I woke up, I didn't understand. But lo and behold, a few months later, I realized that actually what I saw was what happened to me that day. Some small type of thing. May happen, already happened to someone. Sometimes it may never happen to someone. These aren't necessary parts of life, right? Just like there will be many people who are unfortunate, they will never see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a dream. So the things Imam was talking about are not things that happen to everyone. They're just occasional things that happen to some people. Alright? But he's giving that example to show what a dream is. So what is that? that some, okay. So suppose a man has not experienced this himself. So let's say somebody says, I've never ever had a dream. Imagine somebody said to you, I've never had a dream. Now, technically, science will say what he's trying to say is I can never remember a dream I have. Because science seems to think, I don't know enough though, that people, everybody dreams. Right? But maybe, maybe, I mean, I think science could still be open to this, that maybe there may be a human being who doesn't dream. Not necessary. Here, so somebody comes to you, now how are you going to explain to him what it is to dream? <laughs> can you explain that to him? What are you going to say not to? So when you close your eyes, you see nothing. Next thing you know, you wake up. When I close my eyes, <laughs> before, it's not next thing I wake up. Sometimes I see this, and sometimes I see that, and what well, he would think you're talking nonsense, right? Somebody who's never dreamed, if you try to tell him what a dream is, he'll think you're crazy. Right? Okay. So a person who's not experienced himself, suppose that he is told how some people fall into a dead faint. So how could you explain? So Imam Zayat trying to explain to him what a dream is. So you fall into a dead faint in which your sight, your senses don't function. You're no longer seeing things, you're no longer hearing things, you don't taste, smell, senses no longer function. And in this condition, you, what you're you perceiving are things that are unseen. As in your dream, you're saying you're seeing Kaaba, but that's unseen. You're not really visually seeing the Kaaba. When you see the Kaaba in your dream, you're seeing the quote-unquote unseen. That's what it means. Right? He would deny this and say, he would deny this so. And he would try to demonstrate this impossibility. How would you do that? He would say the five powers of sense perception are the only way through which you perceive. And if a person does not perceive things when the senses are working, like you can't see the Kaaba right now, any of you, can you? So how could, if you went to sleep right now in this room, you could see the Kaaba? But right now, you can't see it, and your senses are working. And you tell me you fall into a dead faint, and your senses are working, and then you're going to see the Kaaba. <laughs> That's why they say in English, do you see dreams? They say the word see. They say, I saw a dream. So he'll say, what do you mean, see a dream? <laughs> right? He won't, he won't believe it. He won't accept it. Right? So this is a form of analogy which is shown to be false by what actually occurs in us observed. But does it mean we all know dreams exist? So we know this line of reasoning is false. We know this just like that. Just because me and you have never experienced Nabuwa doesn't mean Nabuwa isn't real. That's what the philosophers were saying. That okay, there's this thing called Nabuwa where we're so intelligent, we're so intellectual, how come it doesn't happen to anyone? They couldn't understand the Khatam and the Buwa, finality of prophethood. They couldn't understand these things. Right? So how come it doesn't happen anymore? It should keep happening. <laughs> it should continue. <laughs> right? So we, we don't accept it. We don't believe in it. Because it never happens. So, so this is what Imam Zayat is trying to do. He's trying to address them. So just as intellect is one stage of human development in which there's an eye which sees the various types of intelligible objects, things that can be known through the intellect, and those things are beyond the realm of sense perception, the reach of our senses, just like that Nabuwa is the description of that stage where the 
eye is endowed with such a light, such a perception, that they can see things that are unseen to the intellect. So that's what he's saying. That Let me try to explain it another way. That person who doesn't know about the intellect, some, but let's somebody who denies rationality. So you would try to tell them, the rationality is amazing, you can understand things, you can think things, you can have thought processes, you can have critical thinking, you can have analytical thinking, but he's still stuck that he only knows sight, self, but... So you would want to show him and try to explain to him how amazing that is. And then, if on top of that, because he doesn't have rationality, he denies everything that is rationally known. So you tell him New York City exists, he says, no it doesn't, so much because I've never seen it. He denies everything. So you see, this is a big problem. He's denying the existence of rationality, and therefore everything that is knowable only through rationality, he's denying that. So the same way he's trying to tell the philosophers that just like you would find that crazy, just like that is crazy for you, atheistic philosopher, to deny the faculty of Nabuwa, just because you haven't experienced it, because then you deny this concept of wahi revelation, then you will deny everything that can be known only through revelation. That's what Allah said about Allah al-insana ma'lam ya'lam. Allah Ta'ala taught humanity things that they could never know. These are things that are not knowable other way, and then the other way. So you're going to live a mahdud life. Just like the person says, I only accept what I see and hear. You have a mahdud life then. There will only be certain things you can know. By not letting yourself accept the faculty of the intellect to know. Just like that if you accept the senses and accept the faculty of the intellect to know, but you don't accept the concept of waqi, that you can get ilm, that Allah Ta'ala has sent ilm, not to us directly, but that Allah Ta'ala has revealed knowledge through the means of the anbiya. If you deny that, then you will have a mahdud life. So he's actually saying that this is not enlightenment to be philosophical only. This is actually constraining. Actually constraining you can see how these arguments are still needed today. There's a whole segment of mu'mineen who are thinking like this. That they don't need Nabuwa, they don't need Hadith, they don't need Quran. But I have my own life, I have my education, I have philosophy, I have secularism, I have ethics, and that's enough for me. Right? They don't know the incredible nature of Nabuwa. Therefore, they don't feel the compelling need for Nabuwa. That's what Imam Zahir is trying to do here. Alright? Then he says that, okay, if a person has doubts... Doubts that Allah Ta'ala sent revelation to say Muslim. That's what he's doing in English, prophetic revelation. That's what it means. If a person doubts that, so there are three possibilities. Either he doubts that it's even possible, or he doubts, he says, no, it's possible, but I don't think it actually happened. That's big. What is to say, I don't think it's possible even. Second is to say, I think, sure, it's possible, but I don't think it's ever happened. You'll get some very, you know, slick agnostics, they'll pull that on you. I said, no, no, I'm not saying it's not possible. I just don't think it's ever happened. Allah Akbar, Ya Allah. You need another way to get them out of this. Or third, they say they doubt that, they say, no, it is possible. And it may even have happened. But I don't know if this specific person had happened to them. So maybe, for example, the Jew or Christian believes that Musa was a prophet. They believe that. They believe Ibrahim was a prophet. So they definitely accept the possibility of Nabuwa. They accept it's actually occurring, but they doubt that it happened to Sayyidina Rasulullah. So he's covered all the types of kufr. This is actually understanding of kufr. He spends another word that disbelief, actually, all disbelief can be reduced or mm, coalesced into disbelief in Nabuwa. And anybody who has true belief in Nabuwa and everything that was revealed by Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet, that means they will always be on Imam. 
Okay, so then three doubts he has to address. So what was the first doubt that it's even possible? So he says the proof of the possibility of there being Nabod. This is the real part for the whatever, quote-unquote, atheist or agnostic. So the proof of the possibility of there being Nabuwa, that Allah Ta'ala sends revelation to the Anbiya, and the proof that there, not that this is possible, but the proof that there actually has been Nabuwa, is that there is knowledge exists in the world, by attainment of which by reason is inconceivable. At this point, it's almost impossible to do this without the board. And it's the first time we've ever taught this without the board, but over here, really, it's almost impossible, so I'll do this for you. What he does is Imam Ghazali works it in the following way. I'll just explain to you what he's going to do. He's going to see that there are certain things that are knowable, certain things that are objects of knowledge. Every object of knowledge must have a source of knowledge. So he first works it this way, that, okay, philosopher, you accept source of knowledge is the five senses. Yes, I do. So that's one source of knowledge. And through that source or tool of knowledge, there must be many things that are known, that are objects of knowledge. Many nobles that are known through the five senses. He says, yes, okay, done. Second, O philosopher, you accept that there is a second source of knowledge, second tool of knowledge, which is the akal. He said, yes. Then there are certain things that are specifically known through the akal, which cannot be known through the five senses. He says, yes. So now you have another body of knowledge. So you went this way. And the third, then he goes, O philosopher, there are some other pieces of knowledge. There are some other objects of knowledge. And they are such that the five senses cannot be the source of them. And akal can also not be the source of them. So if such knowledge exists, for which the five senses can never be a source for that knowledge, and the akal can never be a source for that knowledge, but I can demonstrate to you that that knowledge exists, so wouldn't that necessarily mean there must be another source of knowledge? philosopher says yes. So okay, if I show you that such knowledge exists, then you have to accept there's another source of knowledge. What type of knowledge? There's certain knowledge which you could never get from the five senses and never get from the akal. He'll say, yes, then there must be another source. So he works this one backward. What is that knowledge? So how does he do it? So this is what he's doing here. So he says that there is knowledge in the world, the attainment of which by reason is inconceivable. It's impossible that you could have known that through the akal. For example, and now this is going to be a little difficult, for example, in medical science and astronomy. Whoever researches in such matters knows the necessity that this knowledge is attained only by divine inspiration and by, I'll explain, let me just read it, and by divine inspiration and by assistance from Allah SWT. It cannot be reached by observation. For instance, there are some astronomical laws based on phenomena which occur only once in a thousand years. How can these be arrived at by personal observation? Similarly, it is the same with the properties of certain medicines or by drugs, here he needs medicines, obviously. Right? Okay. Let me just read a bit more. This argument shows that it is possible for there to be a way of apprehending these matters, which is a source of knowledge, a way to know. Because these things are not knowable by the way of knowing, rational knowing, or the way of sense perception knowing. This is the meaning of prophetic revelation. That is not to say that revelation prophecy is merely an expression for such knowledge, but the apprehending of this class of transrational objects is one of the properties of prophecy. But it has many other properties as well. The said property is but a drop in the ocean of prophecy. It has been singled out for mention 
i.e. to you philosophers, because you have something analogous to it in what you apprehend in dreaming, and because you have medical and astronomical belong to the same class, namely the miracles of the prophets, for the intellectuals cannot arrive at these at all by any intellectual efforts. Obviously, the state of medical knowledge today and the state of medical knowledge at the time that Imam Ghazali is writing is different. So let's take one very well-known example, and that is what they call uh, embryology in the Quran. Now, at the time of Imam Ghazali, the Quran, you see, the Quran is a claim to knowledge, right? If you're dealing with the atheist philosopher, at least the Quran is claiming to be knowledge. All right. Second, the Qur'an is saying certain things. It exists. The Qur'an exists, right? In front of him. So you take that verse, let's say, for example, about medicine. What does he mean by medicine? So where Allah SWT talks in the Qur'an that, uh, however you say that, there's a congealed cloth and then there's a wrapping and all those terms that are used in Qur'an. So that is something that at that point, nobody had ever seen that because there was no ultrasound, Right? So nobody ever, not that I know you can't fully see these things anyway, not for some, but in any case, there was no sense perception of that. Second, Akal had not reached, Akal at that time had not reached this knowledge, right? So the Quran is making a claim to knowledge for which the source is neither the five senses nor the Akal. Therefore, there must be some other source of knowledge. Another example, the astronomy thing is, certain verses in the Quran talk about the alternating of the day and the night, right, which is not which today can be understood through astronomy, but at that point, right, was not understood. By the way, let me make it clear, the fact that it can be understood today does not negate this argument. The fact that science understands it today does not negate what Imam Zai is saying, because the claim was made earlier. Therefore, the claim to knowledge made earlier means the source of knowledge must have existed earlier. So we can simply say today's astronomy textbook could not have been the source of the knowledge of those verses of Quran that were revealed 1400 years ago. So the fact that textbook exists today doesn't mean that that was the source of knowledge. That wasn't the source of knowledge. Say that to something not that textbook. No person today, same person can say this textbook was the source of the knowledge that was talked about 14 years ago. No one can say that. Today's medical textbook cannot be the source of the Quranic knowledge. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think the known up to science in the catch up clearly have yet to quite Because today's science could not have been the source of that knowledge that took place 1400 years ago. So this is the argument that Imam Ghazali makes, alright? Okay. And then, so, similarly, once he show, he's showing them, right, these things that you also accept. And therefore, then, the miracles, the mu'jizat of the anbiya, are also things that you cannot understand through akal and not understand perception that they exist. And the intellectuals, rationalists, can never arrive at this knowledge by their mere rational effort. So once you prove that there's a third type of knowledge that could not be known from the source of intellect, could not be known of the source of sense perception, there must be another source. And what is that source? That's revelation and prophecy. So this is Imam Zai's proof for the existence of revelation and prophecy of Wahi and Nabu. The other properties, because he said this was just one property, what does that mean that Sayyidina Sussam in Allah Ta'ala's... We keep saying this, tripping over these English words, but the concept of Imam is everything revealed by Allah SWT to Sayyidina Rasulullah He's calling that wahi. Whether that is matlu, that is Quran, or ghair matlu, that is sunnah. Alright? All of that, one drop of that is the ilm, is the knowledge. 
He says that other properties of prophetic revelation, which is what so what our own Mishnah explained this way, when it's talimatun nabi, when it's kefiatun nabi, ab talimatun nabi eklimsam, that is mandra, and the kefiat sayinasun, that feeling of haya, feeling of tawakkul, feeling of khashiya, feeling of khawf, those are the things that can only be understood by experiencing it. And how can the, a person, after the Prophet experiencing it, by following the path of wilaya, by following the path of tasawwuf, by doing that zikr, by purifying the heart, by controlling their nafs, so that their heart also feels these attributes and these feelings. Then again he goes back to the analogy of the dream, which I think we've done enough of that. Right? What he's suggesting here is that the reason, one of the, he's saying one of the wisdoms in Allah's fountain enabling human beings to dream was they got something analogous, that in the dream they see things that are unseen to them. So they could by approximation understand that if I in a dream can see something which is actually unseen, so obviously Sayyidina Rasulullah when he gets revelation can learn things that were unseen. Alright? That's basically all that you can say about this analogy. If you come to doubt whether so he covers the first two, A and B are done. C was, like the Jews say, I believe that prophet, prophet is possible. I even believe that it's actually happened. But I doubt that this person is a prophet. I doubt that Sayyidina Al-Susam is a no, the beloved. That's what they say. In fact, every Jew is on the Sakina. By definition, to be a Jew means you believe that prophethood is possible and you believe that prophethood happened because they believe in Anbiya. Plus, you don't believe that the particular individual, you don't, they don't believe that he's a prophet, right? So the category C. So Imam says that, okay, if that's your issue, if you come to doubt whether a specific person is a prophet or not, the certainty can only be reached by acquaintance with this context. So first he presents the akhlaq of that person. Alhamdulillah. Khuluq al-Adim, Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, the Sayyidina Al-Susam is the most amazing, tremendous character. Look in the books of Sira, you will discover his character. Either by personal observation, which was Salam Bekram, and many people accepted Islam because of the akhlaq of Sayyidina Al-Susam, or by hearsay, so read all the hadith that describe him, and you will see his akhlaq right there. Or as a matter of common knowledge, for example, if you are familiar with medicine and law, you can recognize lawyers and doctors by observing what they are. Or where observation is impossible by hearing what they have to say. Thus, you are not unable to recognize that Imam Shafi'i is a faqih and that Galen was a tabib. In other words, you don't have to be a doctor to realize that X is a doctor. You don't have to be a faqih to know that Imam Shafi'i was a faqih. Alright? And your recognition is based on the facts and not the judgment of someone else. Indeed, just because you have some knowledge of law and medicine and examine their books and writings, you arrive at a necessary knowledge of what these men are. Similarly, if you understand what it means to be a prophet, and not that what Nubu'at is, what it means for a person to be a prophet, and have devoted much time to the study of the Quran and Hadith, you will arrive at the necessary knowledge of the fact that Sayyidina Rasulullah is the highest grade of prophet. Convince yourself of that by how. So now look back at the board. <laughs> so if you want to know whether Sayyidina Rasulullah is a prophet, if he's addressing someone like that, so okay, Look at the hadith, that's a claim to knowledge. And he's going to, as you can show you in a moment, and put it into practice and see if it's true. If you practice the hadith and it turns out to be true, if the knowledge is true, the source of the knowledge is true, therefore if the hadith is true, the nabuat of Nabiya Kareem is true. That's how you should do it. So what are those hadith that can be experiments? The scientific method is going to show. Experiments. 
So hadith like what? So he gives examples. That trying out what Sayyidina Sussam said about the influence of ibadat and a'mal on the purification of the kalam. For example, Sayyidina Sussam said that whoever practices what he knows, Allah Ta'ala will teach them what he doesn't know. So try it. Do amal on your ilm of deen and see. Does Allah Ta'ala give me more ilm of deen? Does Allah Ta'ala guide me to more ilm of deen? And when you try it out and it happens, you know it's true. That was a true statement. If the statement was true, the source of the statement was true. Therefore, Sayyidina Sussam is truly a Nabi. He gives another example. That Sayyidina Sussam, that if a person helps an evil tyrant, Allah Ta'ala will make it so that he will actually make that tyrant have tyranny over him. So just, I mean, don't. And there's many opportunities to do this in Pakistan. So don't do this. But if a person, you can see that if somebody helps a tyrant, next thing you know, the tyrant is going to be oppressing them. Right? And if you see this happens, you see that that was a true statement. And, and also look, these are statements that you cannot prove to sense perception, and there's nothing you can prove rationally. A pure rationalist will say, no, that's not necessarily true. You could help a tyrant, and he may never be tyrannical over you. That's not rational. So it's exactly that category, a claim to knowledge which cannot be established by source number one, sense perception, cannot be established by source number two, rational intellect. If it's true, there must be a third source. That's the proof of Nabuwa. Imam Zahata is one, 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 done with every type of atheism. All through the concept of revelation of knowledge by Allah SWT to Sayyidina Rasulullah But this hidayah is from Allah SWT who will be moved and understand this and who may remain unmoved and not understand it. Right? Then he he gives uh, another example that Sayyidina Sussam said that if a person rises up in the morning with one single worry and care, what is that to please Allah SWT? If his make, he is only concerned, or his only fikr, this ki fikr yehi ho ki mein Allah Ta'ala ko razi karo, Allah Ta'ala ki tamam perishani ho, dusha perishani ko do. This ki ek fikr perishani ho gyo, ki mein Allah Ta'ala ko razi karo, Allah Ta'ala ki tamam perishani ko do karo. And this is not a rational statement, right? You cannot rationally prove this. Your sense perception can So try it. Start living, wake up in the day and say, my only concern today is every second, whatever I do, I must be pleasing to Allah. Start doing it and see how Allah will take care of all of your needs one by one. Try it. And when you try it, you'll see, statement is true. When statement is true, source of statement was true, prophet was true. Oh, Allah Ta'ala is true. But it's not just in the world to say, because the revelation came from Allah Ta'ala. So Allah Ta'ala exists. Allah Alright? Uh, this can't be psychosomatic. And I'll say, no, it's not psychosomatic. Look, all my things are getting fine. Uh, if I have that my psychic powers, then, then I can... <laughs> it's not. It cannot be psychosomatic. It's reality. <laughs> so when you have made trial of these in a thousand, he says, no problem. I'll curse it Mashallah, Imam Zahar getting the atheist philosopher to follow thousands of these. <laughs> huh? And Mu'mineen can't even follow hundreds of these. Allah, <laughs> this. So when you have made trial of these in a thousand or several thousand instances, then you will reach necessary knowledge. So okay, don't just try one. Keep trying. Keep trying. And alhamdulillah, every single hadith of Sayyidina Sussam will be like this. As-Sadiqul Amin. And that's why the people who follow the Sunnah, truly they have the real love for the Prophet. And the people who don't follow Sunnah, 
they remain in that skepticism, doubt, question, unsure. So you have to follow the sunnah, live the sunnah, experience the sunnah, then you will know the haqiqat and haqqaniyat of sahib sunnah, sallallahu sallam, and then you will understand the haqiqat and haqqaniyat of that Allah sallallahu who created that sunnah and sent it on sahib sunnah. Amma, amma. You have to do amma. So then Imam Zayadin ends, he says that by this method then seek certainty about nubuwa and not from the transformation of a rod into a serpent. Now he's not saying this for us, say to the philosopher, because that's what the philosopher said, that what does this mean that Musa Islam tossed an asa and it became a serpent? Their science doesn't accept that. Transmutation. Science doesn't accept that. He says don't assess nubuwa on your criteria of science. Assess it on this criteria. The collecting of the moon... Atheist says, how is that possible? Say, no, Susan did an ashara and the moon split apart. It's not scientifically possible. So just forget your realm of scientific possibilities. <laughs> Enter the realm of revelatory possibility. <laughs> Escape from the realm of rational possibility. Expand your horizons. Oh, let me use their words against them. Don't be so close-minded and intolerant <laughs> that you only accept the realm of what is rationally, rationally possible. Be open-minded and expand your horizons and accept the realm of what is revelatorily possible. Mahakbar. <laughs> That's what Imam Zahid is saying. Jeep. And obviously once a person comes to the Hikat of the Anbiya through this method, then they'll accept these mujazat. They'll accept all of them. They'll accept all of them. For if you consider such an event by itself, without taking into account, let's just say simply, all of the rest of Nabuwa isn't just this mojizah. You have to look at everything, the akhlaq, the teachings, the talimat, the kifiyat, everything. You cannot make a judgment just based on one incident. And that's exactly that's true. That is actually intellectual honesty, Malzahat's approach. So then let's just skip a bit to the next paragraph then, right, uh, because the miracle part is explained. Admit then the wonders of that wonders of the sort are one of the proofs and accompanying circumstances of the totality. Here it's basically similar. So he says that this is a sufficient discussion of the nature of the revelation that Allah Ta'ala sends on the Anbiya for my present purpose, I proceed to speak to the need for it. Now I'm fishing child, the reason for my teaching again, resuming my teaching after I withdrew from it. This is another question of the story, because the question is this also, right? What happened? Why did you leave and what made you come back? <laughs> Right, so that, that's the last part that was left. Is it time for Maghrib? Okay, so we break for Maghrib, and then inshallah we are going to finish this up as between Maghrib and Isha. Keeping in mind that time we shall last all the way up, huh? I have not. <laughs> we'll try to finish it up soon after. Now the more difficult part is, honestly, and you'll see, and you'll see that this was honest, that from here onward is back to very easy. It's just here where Imam Zadah got philosophical, but he was trying to, right? Rebute philosophical atheism. From here on, it's actually pure nasiha. It's pure nasiha, very simple, inshallah. Very profound, but easier to understand next time.